Hello, Max here. Um, uh, Just before we start this podcast, something went wrong with my equipment uh, in part one, but was fixed for part three. And I'm just about to record part two, so who knows? But fingers crossed. Anyway, the discussion is of high quality and everyone else sounds great. So I hope you enjoy it. This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, one of the biggest upsets in World Cup history. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina 2-1, an entire squad from the Saudi League coming from behind for a deserved victory. We'll get reaction from the ground and from Buenos Aires. And as a pod that's been highly critical of the Saudi regime, ask if it's still fine to enjoy that giant killing. The Socceroos briefly threatened to upstage the Saudis' morning work until Rabio is Rabio is Rabio scored and assisted as Olivier Giroud became France's joint highest scorer. And elsewhere, no goals as an impressive Tunisia hold surely even darker horses now Denmark and Guillermo Achoya in his fifth World Cup the hero saving from Robert Lewandowski who just doesn't get the service at international level 10 minutes from the end of that game Cristiano Ronaldo left Manchester United what will Wilson write about when the season starts again all that Philippe's here to keep the late shift lawyers busy and a full Papa John's preview your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Nikki Bandini. Hiya. Hello, Filippo Clare. Bonsoir, ça va. Bonsoir, ça va, mon ami. Uh, Tom says, 10 a.m. kickoff, a messy goal, keen soonest argument, Saudi Arabia comeback, a thousand minutes of stoppage time. Have we reached peak World Cup? Uh, so, yeah, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina 2-1. I caught up with Paul McInnes, who was at the LaSalle Stadium seconds after the final whistle. Paul, full-time whistle literally just blown. How was that? Uh, it was incredible. I mean, it's a sort of a crazy feeling. I don't think many people came into this tournament thinking you were going to be rooting for the Saudis, but it was impossible not to get behind them. There was tens of thousands of ultras in the stadium. They were giving it some all the way through. Their team fed off that. They probably should have been out of sight in the first half but by the time it came to the second they wanted it more and they scored two incredible goals the stands just went mental everybody jumping up and down in their away Newcastle United shirts and uh yeah it was uh is that the biggest World Cup upset of all time I mean it might be 
Yeah, it might be, mightn't it? And, you know, especially what we thought about this Saudi side before the game began. And they, like, they deserved that, Paul. I thought, what, you mentioned the atmosphere. It felt to me like, just watching on TV, the first, like, the best atmosphere, the first real atmosphere we've had at a game this World Cup. Yeah, listen, I mean, there were empty seats all the way around the stadium, and particularly in the corporate area. But the noise was astronomical. I suspect that must be something to do with the engineering of the Brazil Stadium, which is the showpiece stadium for the World Cup. But like I say, Saudi fans, they were fully behind their team. This was their moment and they, they delivered. I mean, just as an aside, I don't think I've ever seen as many sliding tackles in one match and like <laughs> sliding tackles in the box. I mean, how many sliding tackles in the box? And they were all clean. It was incredible. And also, you know, by the end, there was some amazing kind of just absolutely have it, John Smith's advert, you know, get it launched clearances that I just loved. And that extra kind of five minutes added on must have been like extraordinary in the ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were whistling for 10 minutes of that, 14 or whatever it was that they played. But, you know, the thing was they weren't under pressure. I mean, Argentina didn't have any zip about them by the end. There was no point putting crosses into the box because the Saudis were gobbling it up. You know, they were doubling up on Messi. Messi couldn't get through them. They defended so well. They weren't at risk. You know, they could have maybe even counted a couple of times, you know, themselves if they'd have kind of got their heads up a little bit more. But they played incredible. The game management was excellent. But like I say, if they weren't feeding off the crowd, you know, not just around in the perimeter at the back of the goal where they scored, but right up at the roof of the stadium where we were, I'd be very surprised. I mean, when the, when the final whistle went, they were... They charged across the ground, like galloping, like leaping in the air, spinning around. These guys are never going to, well, I mean, who knows, but in this tournament, maybe it'll happen. But these guys are likely never going to do anything like this in their career. They all play Val Halal. You know, they don't, they don't play in European football. They never come up against these guys and they beat them. I mean, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Take care. Speak soon. And from Paul at the stadium, we can go to Buenos Aires and say hello to Marcela Mora y Araujo. Marcela, you've had most of the day to take that in. How do you feel? Well, obviously, it's incredibly disappointing. I mean, you can't come crashing down from a high as absurdly hyped as this lot were when they reached the shores of the Persian Gulf. But... uh you know, all is not lost. I mean, a lot of people are reminiscing about the Cameroon clash in 1990 when Argentina were completely surprised by an underdog and went on to reach the final. A lot of people are mentioning Spain winning the World Cup in 2010, having lost their opening game. I think it puts a lot of pressure on the team now, obviously, to kind of, uh, well, I think it was Lautaro Martinez who said pitch side, we are now facing two finals. So there's no room for relaxing. But at the same time, you know, it was like a bucket of cold water, really. I think there was a combination, perhaps a little bit of overconfidence, perhaps a little bit of underestimating the opposition, which is quite an Argentinian trait, if one can say such things. And, you know... For me, the most worrying remarks came from Messi and Scaloni when they eventually emerged. We had a very long time with state TV waiting for them to come by, nobody emerging to the mix, so nobody kind of popping their heads. I thought, oh, my God, this is one of those 
Messi goes into a dark room alone for many days and nobody knows what he's thinking. But he was very composed. And when both him and Scaloni eventually spoke, Scaloni said he hadn't spoken to the players yet. But they both mentioned that they knew Saudi Arabia would play like this. They knew the risks of the offside, the, the kind of approach that they were going to take. And that, to me, suggests if they did know that, that's what they were going to face, a little complacency, perhaps. But clearly what happened, I mean, there's also there's so much to discuss, really, about modern football, I suppose. The, the VAR decisions, I think that a lot of them were offside, but there was one that's arguable. It looks like Lantana's ear was maybe offside. And, <laughs> you know, pre-VAR, it might have ended differently. And, of course, famously, if most of Argentina's triumphs to date had happened with VAR, they wouldn't have happened at all. To me, this isn't a disaster. And from the reactions I've been picking up, and especially the, the kind of pundits on TV who essentially have been messy bashing for many years in a way and stopped with this recent Copa America win, there isn't a disastrous feel. It's, it's almost like a sadness and a wake-up call, I suppose, you know. Well, there's two games left. Hey, it's football. Yeah. Um, uh, so 36 matches unbeaten. The last team to beat them was Brazil three years ago. They hadn't conceded in seven of their eight before this game. But, you know, as Paul said, and as you said, Marcelo, Saudi Arabia deserved it. I hate to bring this up, Philippe, but in our preview of this group, you did say it would be a huge surprise if they got more than one point out of this group. You were quite dismissive of Saudi Arabia. And I took Autumn Florex says, who knew Philippe could be human? Could I claim, could I adjudicate myself the laurels of having said, watch out for Saudi Arabia, do not underestimate it on this very oh, Well board. done. Well done, Marcella. You can and you get a point and Philippe gets zero points. No point, Philippe. I get negative points. Uh, I get points taken off my credit. I was totally wrong. And um, in fact, because I, I based my judgment on what they had done in recent friendly games rather than looking what they had done in the qualifiers, where actually apparently they were quite good. But when I was looking at what happened in the friendlies, the preparation, it was pretty abysmal, really. And also, I really wasn't expecting them to play as bravely as they did. I think you must have noticed as well. Usually we're, we're used to Saudi teams actually playing quite far back with the line very close, the defensive line very close to the keeper. Here, they were really far, far more aggressive than they've, I think, ever seen them being aggressive. They're also rather lucky, if I can use that word. And by the way, Marcela, you don't have two games left in this competition. You might have six games <laughs> left in this competition. Remember Spain 2010, what happened? Everybody said, oh, that was awful. And it didn't turn out too badly for them in the end. And I think as well in, uh, was it in 1990, where also it didn't start too well for Argentina. And in the end, you know, they did okay. But yes, I have to do a mea culpa. I've got a huge portion of humble pie in front of me and I will let you know how it tastes a bit later. Probably bitter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's worth saying, you know, both the goals, Nicky, were, were great. But Aldasari's strike is so good. And like that, that just kind of, that whirlwind after half time was just sort of incredible, really. Yeah, I mean, from a footballing standpoint, it definitely felt like this game in general was a bit the moment when the tournament woke up. Of course, England were brilliant against Iran, but that was uh, just a shellacking. That was just a team taking another team to, to pieces. This was a game that 
had been completely one thing in the first half and and then was transformed by these two brilliant goals. And and look, I, I think you have to sort of own your areas of, of knowledge and not knowledge as a journalist. And and I'm not watching Al Hilal every week, but I, I know from reporting by, for instance, John Durden, that Al Dosari is someone who's been really, really dominant for a while over there who gets, um, well, even this last summer, there was a lot of talk about him. I think he's 31 now coming to Europe and finally getting that chance. But of course, do you want to go and take that chance on the eve of a World Cup? And, and clearly it's it's been a, a decision not to. But I think he's generally sort of considered to be broadly by just about everyone, the best Asian player playing in Asia, or at least has been for the last couple of years and scores goals by the bucketful for his club side did it in uh, the club world cup as well as doing it you know through qualifying for for this world cup into i think he earns about 3.5 million dollars a year which is comparable to lots of top players in in europe as well so he is someone who in another footballing ecosystem has been doing this hasn't just sort of come out of nowhere is it the, the tail end of his career i suppose at 31 tail end's probably overstating it but isn't the latter part of his career and and hasn't come out of nowhere but you certainly still can't hit a ball more sweetly than he does for that that second goal. And I think, you know, it's it's such a moment. Um, it's absolutely reasonable to say that that high line and the braveness of it could have backfired. Because in the first half, if Lautaro Martinez times his runs, Argentina score a couple of goals and, and it's game over at half time. Like, that's just true. At the same time, I think it's fair to say, well, if you don't have that bravery in the way you set up, if you don't have that courage, you don't get this result either. So both of those things can be true at the same time. They were a bit lucky. They could have been out of sight in the first half, but they played to their to their chances. In the second half, I thought particularly they, they took it on a step and pressed higher up and it worked for them. I don't know what the Arabic for anywhere or away is, Barry, but that injury time was just sensational, wasn't it? Eight minutes added plus a further six after Al-Shirani got that knocked to the head but just you know flinging limbs everywhere and just hoofing it as far as they could just urging for this final whistle that never came well it did came max um the game is in that over. it did you you are right yes um, that was a bit of sensationalism for me i apologize <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was um i think we're obliged to say backs to the wall stuff and frantic defending and uh, yeah, apart from a quite soft header from Julian Alvarez, which I think was the last sort of bit of action of the game, they didn't really look like scoring Argentina. I wasn't sure how to feel after this game, because, I mean, we've made our feelings about the Newcastle ownership pretty clear on this podcast. And I, I did have a look to see if uh, Mohammed bin Salman had you know, been talking to his other team, uh, the the Saudi national team, and he met them, he had an audience with them about a month ago, and he said, I know our group is difficult in the World Cup, and no one expects us to secure a win or a draw. So what I want to say is just be comfortable, play your game, and enjoy the tournament. Now, I don't know if he there was an underlying tone of menace to that or if there was a, a bone saw humming in the background as he... Um, said that, gave them that message. But are we allowed to be pleased for the Saudi Arabian national team? I genuinely don't know. But I think Philippe has, has an answer. He's nodding. Yeah, I think we, we can be pleased for them because uh, a country is not a regime. People who live in this country are not responsible for the sins of the people who rule over them. And, and they are as well victims of that regime themselves. And 
the joy that was um, of the Saudi supporters who traveled was not a fake joy of people who were um, manifesting their support for a murderous regime. It was the uh, support of a crowd who were cheering on their own. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you keep your eyes open, I don't think there's anything wrong in, in all of these things. And you, you can cheer on them. Just like people cheered on North Korea in 1966, which was not exactly the best of regimes at the time, but we enjoyed the ride, uh, to say the least. Um, it's not cognitive dissonance either, because we're fully aware of what is going on. And I would also say that if Newcastle belongs to PIF and therefore to Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi national team belong to the people of Saudi Arabia. There's a very, very big difference between the two. So well done them. They were magnificent. And well done Hervé Renard, uh, who's had such a weird career <laughs> with your team, Max. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's funny when, you know, Talk Sport or Sport Bible tweet out going, you know, Cambridge United sacked this hero in 2004 and now look at him. As you know, Jack says, you know, if only Cambridge had stuck with him, trust the process. Like we were bottom of League Two. He was terrible. It, it didn't fit. The two things can both things. It could be the right decision to sack a man sort of, what, 18 years ago, a totally different style of football. And, you know, he's clearly got great experience, Renault, you know, at AFCON as well. And, and you know, of, of managing, you know, Twice. Sort of sides like this. He's, he's done incredibly well. I wonder, where do we put this in the sort of pantheon of World Cup shocks? You know, I've got a, a short list here of, you know, we've got obviously Senegal beating France, Cameroon beating Argentina, obviously, in, in uh, 1990. Uh, USA beating England in 1950. I don't know where this, where does this sit, Nikki, for you? Well, Italy, of course, lost to North Korea and then lost to South Korea. So, you know, the double. I can't work out in my head how many years between them. But um, yeah, it's a huge shock, certainly. It, it's, it's, it's a team who, who came in with these sort of expectations of being able to win the tournament, losing to a team that lots of people like Philippe and probably if you'd asked me on there, I would have said the same thing, didn't necessarily expect to get any points at all in this group. So it's a huge one. I don't know how to to rank these things. I, I do sort of want to, um, sorry, Max, I'm just taking it in a different direction to your question, but I sort of, there was some reporting by um, Adam Craft in Athletic that I think is quite interesting and worth raising about the odd position of Leo Messi in this matchup. Someone who has signed a contract, I believe, to do sort of um, tourism promotion for Saudi Arabia until 2030. When, of course, they're bidding to host the World Cup. Now, explicitly, this contract is not about the World Cup bid. In South America, there's a, a sort of joint bid from several countries, which, of course, Argentina will be part of, that's bidding for that World Cup as well. And I just think it's a very particular sort of subplot to this game that you've got one of the best players of all time playing in his last ever World Cup against the country he's going to be promoting after his last ever World Cup and losing to it. Um is, I don't know, it's kind of a, one of those extra curiosities to this whole story that I just find quite fascinating. It is a fascinating curiosity. And it is part of a kind of super interesting meta story that's going on in this World Cup, which is the power that the Arab world is acquiring in the FIFA world business. And I think we've, we're seeing a kind of persistent arm wrestle between FIFA and the Qatari organizing committee, or we were expecting between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, but then it turned out that Saudi Arabia's have arrived as if they were at home. 
and there's this friendship blossoming there. And it's a very, I think it's a very complicated and, well, I, you know, FIFA business is always a bit unsavory and complicated. But what I found really fascinating in the two, three days we have going which kind of goes to the point Barry's making, are we allowed to be happy for the Saudis? And I think, of course we are, especially for the players. I mean, what we've seen is that in a sort of Eurocentric way and with South America, a little bit of kind of wannabe equals to Europe, we have totally underestimated the bravado, the, the braveness, the incredible kind of personality of the Arab nations. And whether it's the Iranian football players not singing and you know not perhaps not performing on the pitch in the game as amazingly but in fact just being so brave and taking a stand about something we're all talking about or whether it's the Saudi players today just going look we're really good and we can just not be scared and we can go and be messy I mean no everyone's scared of playing messy you know people usually Players usually, wherever they're from, whoever they're playing for, their selfie with Messi takes precedence over any other thing that happens on the pitch when they share it with him. These guys just weren't falling for that. And I think that's part of what makes football really exciting and interesting and what would make me carry on tuned into this World Cup, however many reservations one might have about all sorts of things going on with it. Because it ultimately the football is telling us a story or many stories and we haven't actually been giving the Arab world the respect they deserve and they are surprising us. And actually that atmosphere was brilliant because there were lots of Saudi fans there and I guess I guess Philippe if you if the World Cup had been somewhere else, there just wouldn't have been that sort of sea of green, right? There wouldn't have been that... Well, do you think there might have been? Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, the, the, the proximity, of course, um, made a big difference, but they, they do travel with their team, just like the Iranians travel with their team. And also there are, you know, also expat communities and so forth. But it's true that big, because of the context, because of where it is taking place, it's a rather different environment, and which obviously benefited them enormously. And the situation is that, uh, as well, is that when we're looking at what's happening in this group, because do we even need to talk about the other game in this group? I'm not too sure. Uh, they are now in a situation where they could well get, get, will get go through another good result. And guys, you might be through, which is astonishing. I'm interested, Marcelo, just finally on the reaction has been pretty philosophical in Argentina. I, I'd imagine, you know... I don't know what the sort of talk sport equivalent is over there of just, you know, people ringing up being furious. But I would have just thought they'd find someone to blame or like say, you know, Messi didn't turn up or, or whatever. But actually, it's you say it's calmer than I would certainly expect. Yes. I mean, it, we, you, the game was at 7 a.m. And so by, you know, just shortly after 9 a.m., having not had much sleep because there was, you know, hypey preview type stuff all night long on the telly. Everybody had kind of been through an emotional roller coaster. And so I think as the emotional knee jerk response fades, there will be the cool headed analyst coming in and going, Oh, how could you? You know, Papagomas should never be on the left. He's a right footer, or how, you know, whatever. I think there, there was a sense 
Well, the, the things I've heard commented most is that Di Maria was perhaps not up to the 90 minutes, but there was something kind of refreshing and lovely about Enzo Fernandez and Julian Alvarez coming on, who are the, the hope and the future. And they were cool and collected. And, you know, it wasn't a shambles and a terrible performance like we had in 2018, where everybody was just furious. It was an okay performance. And that, I think, also helps. I don't know if everybody is as philosophical as maybe I strive to be, but I haven't heard furious, vitriolic kind of how could they or Messi doesn't turn up for Argentina. And, and, and in fact, well, I mean, I quote I, I him in a, in a piece I wrote for The Guardian that one of the main influences that, um, you know, all the kids follow, Jero Fracious was saying, we've got to support these guys. They've given us so much. Now more than ever, you know, in defeat and in victory, they need us and they're the saddest of them all and nobody wants to win as much as they do. And I think that will sustain until Saturday. And then we might see the, oh God, what a bunch of wooden, unloving to their nation, whatever. But I think the hype was just too much and everybody knows it. And, and it was just kind of, oh, well, it's a Tuesday morning. Let's just get on with life. Um, which is not to say people aren't shocked. It was almost like it was stunned into sadness, but not anger. And that's got to be positive overall, surely. I mean, we don't want any more anger around this. No, we don't need any more. And look, uh, well, I would say, Marcelo, until Saturday, until we have the angry Marcelo Mori Irajo when, uh, <laughs> when Argentina are knocked out in the group stages, we shall see. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Marcelo. A pleasure, as always. Um, see you all. And- See you soon. Uh, And that'll do for part one. Part two, uh, we will talk about France, Australia. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Josh says, we'll always have that 18 minutes where I believed we could win the World Cup. Um... Uh, it was a brilliant opening from Australia. After 19 minutes, Tom Steinford, host of 60 Minutes uh, in Australia. It's a big current affairs show listening to us. Barry said, what formation will Australia go with in the final? They gave their fans hope, didn't they, before France ran riot? Yeah, um, and I'm really pleased that they scored and that they went ahead for a while. Because I looked at the lineup and I really feared for them. Like, the back four of... Aziz uh, Beige plays for Dundee United. Centre-back Kai Rhodes plays for Hearts. Harry Souter, who plays for Stoke and is just back from an ACL injury after a year out. I think he only started, took his first steps back on the pitch less than a month ago. And Nathaniel Atkinson, who plays for Hearts. Atkinson was up against Mbappe. He's he's just a kid. <laughs> well, he's actually older than Mbappe, I think, but he's still just a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, he he God, I mean, 
I wonder how he felt before kickoff because it must have been a terrifying prospect if also, you know, an honour to be on the pitch and, and testing his mettle against Mbappe. But I thought even though they lost 4-1 and could have lost by a considerable amount more, I thought Australia did pretty well, all things considered. And the goal they scored was superb. Harry Souter was playing these raking diagonals throughout. I think this was his second one of the evening. Lecky, the right winger, cut inside Lucas Hernandez and and crossed to his opposite winger, Craig Goodwin, who, who side-footed home with confidence and aplomb. So it was a fine goal. And, yeah, you were sort of thinking they couldn't, could they? But you're saying, well, maybe they could after seeing what Saudi Arabia did earlier today. Uh, but no, it wasn't to be. And and France were just far too good for them. Um, Michael says, I mean, we had, Philippe, a million questions on one particular player, as you can imagine. Whose name will not be mentioned? <laughs> well, is there anything Adrian Rabiot can't do? Oh, my God. Just, <laughs> is Rabiot only Rabiot if he's bad Rabiot? Or can a good Rabiot also be Rabiot? That's um, second. That's the B. That's the answer is number two. Right. Mm-hmm. Why is it? I mean, he played really well there, Philippe, in the World uh, Cup he, he didn't play very well in the first 15 minutes. He gave two balls away. It <laughs> uh, was very lackadaisical. Happened to be in a place which had been deserted by the, uh, uh, by the Australian defence. And True uh, assisted the uh, Olivier Giroud's first goal, but only after an absolutely stupendous backheel by Kylian Mbappe, which was just a work of art. Uh, you saw the good Rabiot today. And obviously, if you never saw the good Rabiot, he would never have had a career. But the fact is, he will never change. He will always remain the same. So I'm afraid I am not changing my tune. I should put this to music at you at some point. <laughs> Other people already have. Oh, my goodness. That's true, actually. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's interesting like, to hear your perspective on, on him, Philippe. And I know it's sort of become like a, a, a thing that's, that's like a, a point of fun on the podcast. But talking about him him never changing, and I've been watching him the first half of the season at Juventus when he, he has been performing better. And I'm I'm struggling myself to put my finger on exactly what has changed for him because um, Juventus have been a, an odd story of their own this season. But the one thing that that definitely has changed between last season this is that there is some end product this was sort of the big discussion in the summer when he looked like he was on his way to Manchester United and he wasn't and of course the reason that he wasn't is partly because Max Allegri the Juventus manager basically has always believed in him even when other people haven't and kind of said to him I'd still like you to stay here and Rabiot thought well ahead of a World Cup that makes sense to me but the thing is he has scored a couple of goals and and been setting up goals the last season the big narrative was okay, Rabiot can be there in the middle of the pitch and he sort of looks the part sometimes, but he never scores and he never sets up goals. Like his, his goal numbers, his assist numbers, genuinely close to zero across all competitions playing 40 games. And it's sort of hard to understand how someone with that role in the midfield never plays a key pass, never gets on the end of a cross, never never does these things. This season that has changed a bit. So it is interesting to see him scoring right away, giving in product in the first game of the tournament. Um, we should talk about Olivier Giroud as well. Matty says, look, you mentioned it on last night's pod, but this is definitely the World Cup of crosses, target man and getting it launched, isn't it? And I'm here for it. And Giroud is now the equal joint record goal scorer for France. And that is quite an achievement given, you know, 
the French centre forwards you could list? Um, yes, and he has got an even better goal per game uh, average than Thierry Henry, whose record of 51 goals he equaled tonight. And we're talking about a guy we, who, when he was 21, was still playing in third division in France. I have no words to, to describe my love for Olivier Giroud. I absolutely adore him. I think he's, what he's achieved with what he has, and also against the criticism that was, has been directed at him throughout his whole career. This is the guy who wasn't good enough for Arsenal. This is the guy who wasn't good enough for Chelsea. But this is the guy who's gone to Milan for, I think, 2 million euros or something, ended up with scoring over 20 goals for them, became an Italian champion, is a world champion, and has now scored 51 goals for his country, despite many people thinking he's not quite as good as they say. I, I have nothing but admiration for him. He's, he's, I, I, I just love him. He's my anti-Rabio, in a way. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's someone that I, I, I admire his attitude. I still think that he's got perhaps a couple of seasons in him, That's, which is extraordinary. And he's not just somebody who heads the ball. There was one, I think, one of the most delicious things in the game was that um, first time, a flick, which he did, I think, for Kylian Mbappé, coming to his left, which is, oh, yeah, it was yeah, absolutely was magnificent. Well, and uh, yeah. I have to say, not moving away from, I'm moving away from Giroud because I could speak about Giroud for an hour. I won that director's cut. Yeah, okay. No, I, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I just love him. But the thing is that France were not great, actually, tonight. They had moments where they looked a bit shaky. They looked a little bit, uh, they didn't press, but didn't need, really need to press. That's fine. And the opponent was not quite of the same caliber as what they will face the rest of the competition. And I'm still doubtful about some things. But there are some minuses. The loss of Luca Hernandez is a big, big one. Uh, it's true that Theo had a great game after he came on and offers far more when he goes forward, but doesn't offer the same uh, defensive solidity. In fact, you know, you will remember how it, um, he lost the ball. I mean, actually gave the ball away and Duke nearly scored a second one, you know, which really went, went past Loris's goal. And mm, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's a minus. Uh, I'm still not completely convinced about uh, the defence, I still think that Pavar on the right is a bit of a liability. On the other hand, the big positive is the fact that the front four actually clicked together was at times a thing of beauty. I mean, the way they accelerate is just frightening. And absolutely pivotal to that, and I really want to insist on that, is the way that Antoine Griezmann played. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. And plays in a more withdrawn role, like a withdrawn 10, you know, Winning tackles, getting the ball back, and also directing the, the play from deep, which is something we've, we're missing because Paul Pogba is not in the team. Pogba used to do that for us. Now we've got a bit of Chouameni is staying there in front of the back four, providing you know, security and safety. And Griezmann is there, more than Rabiot, by the way, to direct the game. And he does that beautifully. And I think Deschamps might have hit on something here uh, that, that could help France uh, you know, as the tournament progresses. But I, I'm waiting to see how they will perform against better teams than Australia. Even though, in the second half in particular, every time they accelerated and put, it, put three passes together, you thought these guys can beat absolutely anybody when they want. They just put the foot on the accelerator and that's that. Bang, 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 bang. All first touch. Really slick and very impressive. And the grace 
and sort of poise and speed and acceleration of Mbappe is is I mean, we all know it, but it is so sensational, isn't it? And Barry's right, like up against this poor lad who actually did quite well. And like every time he managed to tackle him, you just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> it was like scrappy do or something. It's like, yeah, you did it. Well done, mate. It's so patronizing for a player in the World Cup, but Mbappe is a different level, isn't he? Uh, he? He was, and he was, he was truly magnificent tonight. And the other thing is that people have been saying over the past few months in particular that he tends to try and be the solution to all of France's problems thereby creating another problem. And tonight, you saw Mbappe, who really wanted to make others play and actually, you know, assisted goals, and as well scored a header. Oh, by the way, a statistical oddity, France scored three-headed goals tonight. It was the first time since when, since we scored two-headed goals in the same game. And you know that game. Yes, we hadn't scored two-headed goals in the same game yeah. since 1998. So, obviously, there's been a change somewhere. And the fact that Mbappe actually scored a header is also quite, quite remarkable. But he's, in very, very, he's very, very sharp. Dembele looked also uh, very dangerous indeed. And Coman, when he came on, looked actually in really good shape too. So, that all goes well. But there are still problems at the back. And, um, you know, I can't be convinced that this team can, can really go all the way. Yeah, it's gonna, I can't think so. Um, I think they could. Uh, <laughs> yes, they could. I know. I'm trying to double hex them, you know. I'm doing the Italian thing of the double hex. Mm. <laughs> Philippe touched on it, but I mean, when Griezmann's sort of like, oh, this extra little bonus that you get. I mean, he's only 31 years old. I feel like this sort of situation he's had at Atletico might have served him perfectly in, in the run-up to this tournament. He's only had to play seven and a half games or something, which is just enough to keep him fully sort of switched in and at the same time that's at seven starts and seven last starts is more than seven and a half games really but um it's enough to keep him switched on but also not enough to have worn him out in this ridiculous churn that a lot of European football has been going through of two games a week constantly having him as the free man behind that attack it just looks so so decadent I mean I, I completely share Philippe's enthusiasm for Giroud I think with my Italian football hat on, what he's done at Milan is, is remarkable. There was this sort of cursed position at Milan for such a long time, the number nine shirt. No one since Pippo Inzaghi, more than a decade, got to double figures. And that includes, by the way, Gonzalo Higuain, Fernando Torres, um, Piontek, Andre Silva. Like these aren't all like nobodies. They're people who are brought into some fanfare. He comes in and just does it straight away. He's got that, that calm to him, that sort of, I'll just get on with the job and score goals thing to him. Nobody watching him is thinking oh this is as fantastic as, as Henri was when he was leading the line but look he's got as many goals now as Henri and that's what matters but then you add to that that little bit of sort of creative spark of Griezmann the nonsense brilliance of Mbappe and you think how many teams in this tournament can offer that sort of combination up front I think they look very much like a team that can can take all of this I mean it's one game but but yeah when you see it all together on the pitch it's it's pretty intimidating the only other notes I have from this game was uh when the sort of it sort of hit a lull and then Jonathan Pierce just started talking about how it's not as good anymore because you can't stay in the same hotel as the players or something like this sort of this stream of consciousness room it's something to do with safety or something I don't know what it is but really come on come on Didier let Jonathan Pierce room with Osmana Dembele come on just just for him um and hearing that the Socceroos had flown their own barista over uh, to Doha, um, which is 
Not a surprise because Australians are the biggest coffee snobs on earth. Coffee is very good there for that reason. So, um, you know, at least they've got something to look forward to tomorrow morning. Um, And that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do a couple of goalless draws, uh, a bit of off-the-pitch Qatar and Ronaldo too. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Two goalless draws then for us. So let's do Denmark-Tunisia first. Uh, Tunisia not fancied. Um, pretty impressive, I thought, actually, Nikki, in this. Yeah, it was unlike the other game that we'll get to. I thought it was quite an entertaining nil-nil. I, I thought it was so. quite an interesting game. Um, uh, there was there was sort of plenty of, of, I don't know, fascinating little dynamics going on. On the pitch, I thought, for anyone else who's watching on, on ITV, I thought Nadia Nadim made a really interesting point at half-time about the fact that Tunisian normally play with three across the middle and they went with the midfield four and it, it seemed like that sort of shook Denmark's expectations of of, of what they were going to see up, up a little bit. And it, I don't know, I, just, I feel like the whole game, Tunisia were like this, this coiled snake almost. They were sort of letting Denmark sort of move around them and and yes if you want to go take that space around the outside which has happened in a few games in this tournament you've seen teams sort of block out the middle and say okay if you want to take that space out the outside you can have it but when we spring at you we're going to spring and you know Jabali had that goal disallowed in the first half drew that incredible save from Schmeichel on, on the, the verge of half time they felt in an odd way more dangerous than Denmark Denmark had more control but, but Tunisia felt more dangerous than that that dynamic was really fascinating to watch. I thought it was a fun game. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with that, Nikki. Actually, I, I, I felt Barry Tunisia wanted it more. Um, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I wasn't impressed with Denmark. I, I think there's quite high expectations of them going into this tournament, and I'm not really sure why, because I kind of think they're bang average, and I wasn't expecting a great deal from them and we didn't get a great deal from them. I think the highlight of my the game for me was that Andreas Cornelius miss. Oh, so good. It was quite <laughs> astonishing. I think he had so much time as the ball came into him at the far post and he was all of two feet out that I think he thought about volleying it. Then he thought about just sticking it in with his thigh and then he went, no, actually I'll head it. And in the end, he didn't do any of those things. And just missed it completely. Yeah, Thomas says someone has to ask: Could Barry have scored the sitter? Cornelius missed from about two inches against Tunisia, and I actually think even by just falling over, you might have scored that. <laughs> I, I think I could have scored that. Um, yeah, it was it was a remarkable miss. But yeah, Tunisia were impressive. But I I think Denmark were probably there for the taking, and and they didn't take them. So both teams will see as points dropped I don't think either of them particularly deserve to win the game Baz makes a good point Philippe everyone's talking about Denmark being dark horses but as I was watching that game I was like how many of their players are actually any not any good but like really good they don't, they don't have they've got Ericsson's a lovely footballer Heiberg can do a job can't he but like Heiberg did an elastico Heiberg was out there showing off at points yeah, in this game it's I true. it is true but like they, it's not like they have an amazing team is it they don't have as many amazing players as they had in previous legendary incarnations of that particular national team, but they do have some decent players. Actually, all of them are very decent players. Well, of uh, course, yes. Uh, yes, uh, but it's the team that made the difference. And obviously, what we're thinking of is that 
we're thinking back to Euro 2020 and what happened and the way they reacted from that and then the progression through the tournament uh, and how brave they were and how surprisingly good they were at times. One thing they lack is creativity. And in a way, when I saw Thomas Delaney having to go out, on one hand, I thought, oh, no, not another one. And then I saw Damsgaard coming on and I thought, oh, yes, that's a good thing. That might actually change that game and change the way they play because he's a, he's a lovely footballer. He's a great talent. But... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's still only coming back. He had a pretty bad injury. And so he's coming back. He's not quite at the level that we saw him in, in the past. Well, the past not that long ago. He's still very young. Uh, but it's the collective here, which has been very impressive. And uh, But they came. I mean, I, I thought that the way the Tunisians attacked the game was absolutely stupendous. I wasn't expecting such aggression, really, in the way they were hounding them. And how Denmark found it extremely difficult to start with, at least, to take the ball out of their 30 yards, there were always two or three Tunisians around them, you know, like a swarm of, of mad bees and singing them. And, and that worked. But neither team looked like they had, uh, to be honest, the, uh, again, uh, they're not the only ones in this tournament, to have quite the attacking power of the forwards to get those chances and put them in the net, and which is something we could say about the other nil-nil. Uh, which perhaps we should almost gloss over because it was just, it was just awful. And in France, oh, we'll get to it. Oh, we'll, we'll get, get to it. Okay, we'll thank you. Yeah, um, uh, you mentioned that great save from Schmeichel. I did enjoy John Hartson saying that is one of the best saves I've seen in my life. And I was just trying to think of. I just wonder if John Hartson's probably playing in matches where there've been saves that were better. It was, it was a good save to give Casper Schmeichel some some credit. And Peter Walton had a fun game, didn't he? When that last minute. VAR penalty that wasn't given for handball. Am I right in thinking it wasn't given? The ref gave a free kick to Tunisia in the end because there was a push by someone else at the corner, but but Peter didn't go Peter didn't go into that bit. He was just like, ah, oh. he just says, Well, I've seen him given, which is sort of what he says quite quite frequently. But I mean I was I was pleased that wasn't a penalty. I actually thought, Barry, that Hoiberg could have had a penalty when he was pushed over, but Recently, pushing someone over in the box doesn't seem to be a foul. Um, <laughs> pushing them over isn't. Pulling them to the ground is. Yes, correct. Yeah. I'd, look, I, I don't know. Is it because it's not clear and obvious or is it because it has to be, you know, you, you see old pros going, oh, it's how forceful is the push? Like, if it's only a little push, then it doesn't count. But if it's a big yeah. shove... Or if you're looking so, for you know, it. It's yeah. either a push or it isn't. <laughs> there isn't really any middle ground. But so, like, I can't be arsed arguing about refereeing decisions, particularly when it's between two teams I have no interest in. <laughs> Can you be asked to argue about the Lewandowski penalty? I felt to me, we'll, get, we'll do this game quickly. Uh, it felt to me that was justice that Guillermo Ochoa saved that penalty because I was... I sort of when you that's I know it is a shirt pull, Nikki, but it's not really because they're both fouling each other, aren't they? Oh yeah, it was. I don't know. It was a very soft penalty, um, and I feel like in my mind it was all just part of a necessary set of events that had to happen so that Achoa could steal the show and steal our hearts in another World Cup as he does every four years. You know, not not the rest of the time, but at World Cups every four <laughs> years he shows up and and does and and does miracles. I saw someone tweeted. And I'm sorry, whoever this was, because it was not someone I follow. It was just a viral tweet. But someone tweeted that 
Guillermo Choya is to World Cups what Mariah Carey is to Christmas. And I thought, yes, that feels <laughs> that feels right. So I'm glad he had his moment. Because other than that, there was not much to say about this game. I didn't think it was. No. I thought it was very boring. I always assumed that Choya just plays in World Cups and then put him in a box <laughs> for four years. But apparently he does play somewhere else. And he he's not a popular choice of goalkeeper for Mexico. A lot of Mexican fans did not want him anywhere near the squad, let alone the team. So he might have changed a few minds today. There was like a really distinct contrast, especially after that penalty, between just like how energetic the Mexico fans seemed. Like they seemed like there was so much sort of power and enthusiasm in that stadium. And then you looked on the pitch and they just didn't seem to be translating into tempo on the pitch. The game sort of, despite all of that, just stayed stuck in this, I don't know, third gear sort of mode that it never really came out of. After that penalty save, Martin Keown did say, you couldn't script it. And you're like, well, you probably... <laughs> <laughs> he probably could, you know. Lewandowski still hasn't scored at the World Cup, which is quite interesting, isn't it? And he, he can't blame not getting service when it's a penalty, right? That, that he can't blame. Mm. The... It wasn't a good penalty. No, it wasn't. It wasn't was a it? good penalty. No, it wasn't. No, but apart from that, Poland's tactics were diabolical. It was just Wojciech Szczesny lumping the ball long, and then they weren't winning the ball. So just giving possession back to Mexico over and over and over again. And... Philippe was saying, you know, before we started recording, what is the point of Poland? Like, what do they ever bring to the party? And the answer is nothing. They are the Everton, are they, of, of, of the yeah. World Cup? They're always there. And at the end, they always do exactly what you expect them to do. And I guess that is their point. Yeah. I, I would like to apologise, by the way, to fans of Denmark who are going to get angry, my dismissiveness of them. But I'm just so... I feel like I know Denmark far better than I should because Ireland have played them so often in recent years and the Wales have played them a lot. Or no, sorry, it's Belgium that Wales always play. But I, yeah, I just... Oh God. Yeah, I, I can't be dealing with, with Denmark anymore. That's okay. That's okay. You, you, I mean, you have to deal with two more games, probably at least, maybe a, maybe a few more. I mean, the most exciting part of this game was that Cristiano Ronaldo left Manchester United with about 10 minutes to go. Just, uh, We'll get onto that in just a second, uh, just to touch on some of the uh, off-the-pitch stuff in, in Qatar. And we haven't spoken to you, Philippe, I think since the tournament began. Um, and sort of every day there's a FIFA have said this, FIFA have done this. Um, we haven't talked about Belgium start tomorrow. And um, they were told to cover up the word love that was on one of their shirts. As, as Nikki, as you said in the WhatsApp group, uh, I don't want to steal your line, but you can't imagine a Bond villain saying you can't use the word love. I mean, it's sort of, if it wasn't so grim, it would be hilarious. Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, you know, if, if you'd spoken to me yesterday, I think my whole mood would have been very different. Well, it was very different by the end of yesterday, which is when this news was um, came out. I was furious yesterday, if I'm being honest with you. I I spent most of yesterday in a state of just sort of deep anger at the whole thing because there's so much that we know is is wrong about this tournament. And and I think you guys did a fantastic job covering it in the build-up to tournament, covering different topics, looking at it from different angles. But as someone who is LGBTQ+, and who is sort of really like at the thinnest end of the wedge with it, frankly, because I am in the end a privileged person who lives in relative comfort in a country that is relatively safe for me to live in. This is not about me, but at the same time, the sort of speed with which football's solidarity with a huge 
fine, we're a minority, but a huge demographic worldwide of real people with real lives and show that it's not willing to stand up for us even in the most minimal way and not make the most minimal gesture of solidarity for people who very often have to overcome huge hurdles in their lives to live authentically, to love people, literally to love the people who they fall in love with or just to be the people that they are, culminating in this bizarro world oh no, you can't wear a shirt that, by the way, must have been shown to FIFA months ago. All of these shirts get signed off by FIFA a long way before the tournament. That has the word love inside the collar, not even outside the collar, with no reference at all, frankly, to what kind of love we're talking about. It's just the word love. There's no rainbow flag on it. There's no nothing. It would be funny if the greater picture wasn't so grotesque. It would be funny if the overall situation that's going on with this tournament wasn't absolutely vile and it was a it was a point yesterday when this when this when I saw this so I was I was at the end of my tether frankly and I sort of thought well this is just beyond and it's it's been really interesting you know I I didn't chime in earlier so I just sort of feel like I want to respond a little bit because of what Barry said about Saudi Arabia winning and it, it is really strange because when I think about Saudi Arabia competing to host the 2030 World Cup it gets me really angry again it gets me really frustrated that this conversation doesn't even feel like it's moving in a positive direction and yet funnily enough that did feel for me like that was the first sort of 90 minutes of this tournament I did just think about the football I just watched the football and thought gosh this is a good football game that's happening and I'm I'm glad to be enjoying it but yeah by the point this this Belgian thing came out last night I was yeah, lost between rage and, and yeah, to some extent wanting to laugh at it because it is like something out of a cartoon. I mean, the villainousness of let's not let them say the word love. I, you wouldn't put that in a Dr. Evil line for a Austin Powers movie. It's stupid. <laughs> you wouldn't. No. So the Belgian spokesman, Stefan van Luke said FIFA banned the shirt because of commercial links to the Tomorrowland Music Festival, uh, not rainbow colours. Adidas stated, with the kit, the Belgian Red Devils and partners involved intended to make a positive, fun statement of love in times of turmoil. They've been told they could wear them if they covered up the love, but the spokesperson confirmed they'll instead wear their red home shirts for their group games. Um, they've also been told they can't wear their planned warm-up shirts because they're too festivally. Uh, FIFA regulations ban the display of commercial messages and slogans at FIFA-organized events giving exclusivity to its own commercial partners and prohibits political, religious or personal messages or slogans on players' kits and equipment. Jan Vertonghen, uh, speaking ahead of the Canada game, said, I don't feel comfortable and that is telling enough. We're put on the spot. I'm afraid that if I say something about this, I might not be able to play on Wednesday. That's a situation I've never, ever experienced in football. I hope I will never, ever have to experience it again because it's not good. We're being controlled. I don't like making political statements. We're here to play football. And if we can't even do that because we're making a statement and just saying normal things like no to discrimination or no to racism, and you cannot say that, then hey, then what? Um, Philippe. Jan Vertonghen's right. I, I'm in Belgium at the moment. And uh, when we learned the news um, here, I have to say people burst out laughing. They thought it was a prank or a joke. It couldn't be real. Then we had confirmation. And it's like everybody's stunned. It's wondering what on earth is going on here. And it seems to be going... I mean, FIFA has, has dug this huge hole for themselves and they're carrying on digging. And you can be assured that they, they will find new depths uh, you think they've hit bottom, but they will carry on digging. It's basically submission uh, to a regime. 
There's no other word for it. Yeah, and uh, I see the German Football Federation are thinking of taking FIFA to court over their diktat that the one love armband can't be worn. And they've lost a major supermarket sponsor over this, the, the German football team, the Mannschaft. Um, the only thing I'd like to add is that if Johnny Liu writes an article stating the obvious that FIFA are a shower of shits for doing this, or Eric Scott appears on TV wearing a one love armband, or Roy Keane comes out and says that the World Cup shouldn't be in Qatar, or Grant Wall tweets about being detained from wearing a, a rainbow T-shirt, going on Twitter and saying, oh yeah, but you're still there taking the money, aren't you? And enjoying the buffet. Um, that's not the gotcha a lot of people seem to think it is. It's their job to be there, and it's good that they're there, and there's nothing wrong with being there. And if they weren't there, and if reporters like Paul McInnes and Wilson and Johnny Liu and Miguel Delaney and Ken Early weren't there, uh, among many, many others, working hard to bring us the news of all these new and ever more bizarre FIFA diktats and silliness, then we wouldn't hear about them. We'd just get FIFA spin and, and Qatari spin. So it's important these people are there. So I, I just, it really, it doesn't even irritate me anymore. It just bores me, people going, oh, you're still there taking the money. Why didn't you stay at home? These people should all be there. Philippe Barry touched on the, the German FA possibly suing FIFA. What do you know about that? Basically what happened is that um, the German FA I received a very terse communication from one of their main sponsors, a supermarket chain, saying that uh, given how meek uh, and cowardly the response of uh, the DFB, the, French, the German FA, French FA, let's not even talk about them, had been to FIFA's uh, diktats, they were con seriously considering putting an end to their partnership, which is worth an awful lot of money. And lo and behold, very quickly afterwards, that's what I've been told, uh, the German FA is now exploring uh, the means to sue FIFA uh, and has is basically want to take FIFA to CAS because FIFA only answers to CAS, which, by the way, it funds in part. So good luck with that. And um, so there might be something happening. The Germans, to be fair to them, are the only European uh, federation to have said that they would not vote for Gianni Infantino when he's re-elected, re-crowned or whatever in March 2023 because he has no rival. He's made absolutely sure there would be none. Um, so there might be something in the German FA's attitude. But I, I, I do believe that we're coming to a breaking point actually in the relationship between quite a few of those FA's and, and FIFA. And, and I... If I may I add one thing, you, you know, you were talking, Nikki, about the commercial links, this shirt, you know, and apparently that's for commercial reasons that the Belgians can't wear it. Uh, on the day they did that, uh, appeared on the LED boards in the stadiums in Doha, an Islamic country where gambling is prohibited, an advertisement for uh, a gambling company, which is based in Bulgaria and Malta, which FIFA has just signed a multi-million dollar deal with, didn't even release a statement we only found out by chance. I just saw the name appear on the LED boards, then talked to a couple of contacts I have there, and they said, yes, we've got a deal in place now with Betano. That's the name of this company. They didn't announce that to anybody, putting an end to one of the only good policies that FIFA had. 
Um, so, yeah, FIFA have a new gambling partner. It's Batano. Uh, FIFA's head of partnership development, Luis Rodriguez, said, we're excited to see what they have planned to engage fans around the region. Batano announced, we're proud to announce Batano is the first official FIFA partner betting operator. The history of the biggest football event in the world will be written with our logo on the field. We continue to provide a responsible and secure sports betting experience of the highest standard to millions of football fans who are looking forward to the next four weeks. I have a question, Philippe. Which, do you think... You say there's a possible close to breaking point between FIFA and the FAs. Feels to me very much like it's it's European FAs. European FAs, absolutely. And so, and we are we are accused of being quite, you know, of, of all this criticism being very Eurocentric, adding Australia in as well. The rest of the footballing world, when we chatted to Tim Vickery in the preview, he said that there's no mention of human rights or sort of any sort of particular quibbles with FIFA. We know that Infantino has his man in charge of CAF in Africa. So, so it's quite interesting that it is just European FAs. And, and what's the what's the end point here? The end point here. I mean, one major zone of conflict will come uh, because of the alliance between uh, UEFA countries and South American countries, which basically compose almost all of the world's elite nations in terms of football. Uh, there is a, there are plans afoot uh, of uh, South American countries joining the kind of revamped Nations League, which would basically become a World Cup, a second World Cup, without teams from other confederations. But basically almost every single one of perhaps all the countries which are in the top 10 of FIFA. So you could have a a breakup of FIFA. I'm not saying that the reasons for that are necessarily noble. I think UEFA and Condébol certainly want to protect their own economic systems and they want to profit from that. And they're not happy with the power grab that basically FIFA has been doing in terms of uh, expanding the World Cup to 48 nations, uh, the Club World Cup expanding to 21 clubs, uh, all these projects, the support of FIFA for the Super League in Africa, openly, in Europe, in the corridors of power. So it might come to a point where people say, we've just had enough. Like many fans, many fans, like many of us already say so that, this is ridiculous. We want to enjoy the football. We're still enjoying it. But every day there is something happening and there will be more before the end of the tournament, without a doubt. I look, and it, it is a conversation for another day and we'll definitely do a pod on it about the future of FIFA because it's fascinating. You know, I'd just like to start the campaign to install you as head of football, Philippe, and I'd like to explore that in as much detail as we can. Uh, moving the conversation on, Joe says, if Barry's criticism improved Ian Acho and Philippe's improved Rabio, why hasn't Wilson's worked on Ronaldo? Uh, Eugene says, in this age of football megastars, it's nice that a player who doesn't even have a club can be selected for the big tournament, the beautiful game. Um, obviously, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to leave Manchester United by mutual agreement with immediate effect. The club, uh, Manchester United, thanks him for his immense contribution across two spells at Old Trafford, scoring 145 goals in 346 appearances and wishes him and his family well for the future. Everyone at Manchester United remains focused on continuing the team's progress under Eric Ten Hag and working together to deliver success on the pitch. Cristiano Ronaldo said, following conversations with Manchester United, we have mutually agreed to end our contract early. I love Manchester United and I love the fans. That will never, ever change. However, it feels like the right time for me to seek a new challenge. I wish the team every success for the remainder of the season and for the future. Who dumped who, Barry? Uh, Well, as is the case in all these mutual agreements, it's generally more mutual on one part than the other. I suppose we'll find out when we we learn how much of a payoff he's getting, if anything at all. 
I suspect Manchester United would be delighted to be rid of him. He should never have gone there in the first place. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't help but think of the morning it was announced, or the morning before it was announced he was going to Man United when everyone thought he was going to City. Rio Ferdinand clearly was in the know and, you know, hinted at it on Twitter and thought it would be a fantastic move for United and it really hasn't worked out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm just interested to see what happens to him next or where he'll go, who'll want him. Um, I don't imagine there'll be too many suitors. Mm, well, he's not going to Burnley because uh, on BBC One, Vincent <laughs> Company said, no, we we need players who can run. And everybody laughed. D.A. Drogba laughed. They all laughed. Um, where do you think he'll go, Nicky? The States? I don't think so. I think he still believes too much in his um, his own powers and would want to try and play in the Champions League again. The suggestion that seems to be most popular is sporting, isn't it? Going back to to finish with one last chapter back at the club where it started. But I honestly, I, I don't know. And, and of course, the, the question with sporting would be, can they put together a financial package that's good enough for him? And does he care maybe he's happy not to accept that sort of financial package now but that seems like at the moment it's the 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 destination that seems most likely although even then i don't think i don't think it's at all a certainty no 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 one seems to have a very clear idea just yet i mean new new cats could afford him but i wouldn't imagine they'd touch him with a 40 foot pole it's an interesting one actually no i don't think it's not it's not the model is it it's not what they've done you know and Chris Wood is probably more mobile to come <laughs> off the bench for Callum Wilson. Maybe he could co-host a TV show with Piers Morgan on Talk TV, Philippe. I know you'd watch. Yeah, I'd watch something else. You mean? Um, <laughs> I, you should. You know, New, Newcastle. I, I'm thinking. You know, because it's also a competition. We want marquee signings. You know, there's also go beyond Eddie Howe and the rest of it. It's between Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi and and Qatar. So. It's not that crazy. I mean, and also there was talk about Chelsea uh, at one point, but that seems to have been complete hot air uh, put in there. One interesting thing, by the way, you know, the interview with uh, Piers Morgan, which basically uh, kicked off the whole show. I've been told from a reliable source that it was done against the advice of George Mendes and it was organized by another agent, which is interesting. So, you know, sometimes ego and overwrought and overbearing sense of pride and self-worth can lead you to do some very stupid things. Is there any chance, Philippe, that him and Messi playing chess together in that photo is a subliminal pre-advanced warning he's off to PSG and they're going to put them all together and just make it the, that project even more oh my god! Than it is? Oh my God, please. By the way, I'm a chess player and I'm really upset about that photograph because the pieces are... Well, the pieces are all over the place. They're not, they're not in the right place at all. It's just like purely random. And by the way, is it photoshopped? Is it photoshopped, that photograph? Probably, isn't it? I don't know. But you, you feel for who's playing holding midfield if you've got Messi, <laughs> Neymar, Mbappe and Ronaldo up there. You know, good luck. Good luck. Um, Pep's got an, uh, signed a new one-year contract and with an option for a further 12 months. Bournemouth's looked set to appoint Gary O'Neill. These are all things we'll talk about when the World Cup's done. And Rob says, what are your predictions for tonight's Papa John's round of 32? I presume that's why you're doing the pod. I could give you the latest scores, but frankly, we all want to go to bed. And four <laughs> games in a day, Barry. It's too many, isn't it? It's just one too many. 
Yeah, I want to go to bed, but I think I'm going to go for a couple of pints first. I think I've earned them today. Righteous pints. Righteous pints. Many congratulations to you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to bed because my eight-month-old son likes to hit a tea strainer between three and four in the morning <laughs> at the moment. Uh, <laughs> so that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Uh, cheers, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Uh, thank you, Barry. Cheers. Uh, just a note to take a listen to our sister podcast, Science Weekly, which today released an episode on the environmental impact of the World Cup in Qatar, uh, with Paul McInnes covering the burden of building stadia, flying in players and fans from around the world, keeping pitches green, and asked whether football is really ready to face up to its carbon footprint. Uh, football Weekly was produced by Lucy Oliver with Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett, and we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.